Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by technology recruitment experts, Cathcart Technology, uh, and Infer, a data analytics startup who gives anyone with an analytical mind ability to do ML-powered analysis. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Ben McLaughlin, um, who's the head of data science and machine learning at We Buy Any Car. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for coming on. I actually even have a question about your job title, but I'm going to add it back in at the end. I'm going to try and remind myself. But before we go into We Buy Any Car, head of data science, let's take a look back from LinkedIn, a mechanical engineering degree. Is that right? Yes. Any particular reason? Was that kind of just something that grabbed you at the end of school that you were interested in? I, if I can remember back, the reason I decided to take the mechanical engineering route was my my cousin did it. And I was at that point in life where I was thinking, oh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and then it, it, it just happened to, to fall in there because he was doing it. Uh, and then it seemed interesting at the time. I like I like to build things and it seemed, it seemed a logical route at the time. Nice. It's funny how you can make decisions on like friends or like family. My dad did a job for 44 years and the only reason he did it is because his brother did it. And he was like, yeah, that looks all right. And then like 50 years later, he was like, I should probably retire. But then you stayed on and did a PhD at Liverpool John Moore's where it was robotics and computer vision. Is that like a fairly natural progression for mechanical engineering? Because like you said, you like to build things? Yes, I think... I didn't. I didn't intend the PhD route. It came to towards the end of the undergrad degree, and I was was contemplating what to do next. And an opportunity came up, and you know, I, I studied hard during the undergrad, and I got to the point where I had the the qualifications to be able to be considered for the PhD. It was part of a um, Horizon Twenty Twenty project, so it, it was that blend between tech development but deployment as well. So you could see some sort of like tangible thing that you could hold and use because it, it had to be applied towards it was a 3d mapping project it, we, we had the privilege of attending a lot of historical sites throughout europe as part of it and we developed robotic systems both aerial and ground-based and we we used uh, computer vision technologies such as structure from motion through cameras and then we use lidar as well with, with the three-dimensional mapping that was that was my part of the project was to develop a lidar based robotic system that could you know scan agricultural sites so we went to the the father of alexander the great's palace in i think it was it was a northern greece at the time in a place called Aigai. and then we did a a cave in belgium the Anderthal cave and we you know we we spent most of the phd uh, building robots and um, having them navigate through these really rugged terrains it was pretty fun but we had to build that from scratch with both the hardware and the software it was fun. The academic route wasn't for me in the end. I didn't like the the time that things took in order to get done, which is why I looked to, to, to transition towards you know, more of like the industrial type role. That's super interesting, actually, because my next question was, it looked like you did a more applied PhD. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but like there was someone else on the podcast a long time ago that did a PhD in industry, I think was the phrase he used. So like he was with a big consultant firm and he was building this like these, these crazy things about like what you were saying there um but it felt different because it wasn't all just like on his own in the university so like it feels like you probably got 
even though you said, yeah, the academic route wasn't for you and the speed of it, you probably even got like a slightly different version than a lot of people experienced just by being able to do that stuff, Most definitely, right? most definitely. And the project was alongside of a big consortium. So there was research institutes from France, some from uh, Greece, and you, you had the opportunity to work with some really intelligent people. And that's when you know I, I started to experience firsthand you know, the 3D modeling using iPads and things, you know, you could literally scan a candle that was on your desk and it would recreate a three-dimensional model, which then can be sent to a 3D printer. And you could, you know, effectively create physical things from from cameras. So it, it, it was really good. And I think the ability to, to actually apply it and see it in, in action was was you know, it was it was a very big learning curve, and it was tough. It was really tough. You know, I you have to blend the hardware aspect with the software. Yeah, it was good. I learned a lot. <laughs> My next question is: Did you have any desire to stay in academia post uh, PhD? But obviously not. Um, and like you said, the main driver just that speed of getting things done, like wanting to be able to, like I don't know, like I, I can imagine that world where. It must get frustrating where you just you got an idea or like a way of doing something and like it just takes forever. Yeah. And I think you know the the whole aspect of, of of being a part of a culture as well appealed to me at the time. You go into an industry and be part of a team where everybody's collaborating and working towards a common goal. Uh, and I think being a part of something like that at the time was I was attracted to that a lot. Uh, and that's not to say that you don't get that in academia, but I mean the industrial type of experiences it's different. Yeah, and I have heard from a few people on the show that have done PhDs that you can sometimes feel a bit lonely in a PhD, but you can also feel kind of guarded because everyone's trying to, like, do their thing. And, like, it can be quite, like, maybe not competitive, but, like, it isn't as collaborative as maybe you might expect it to be. So post-PhD life in, I think it's, like, April 2019, you joined uh, We Buy Any Car, who probably for the first time on the podcast, maybe not the first time, but I imagine everyone listening knows who We Buy Any Car are. How did that move come about? And kind of, I assume there was a few things that, that you might be interviewing for or you'd heard about. So what made We Buy Any Car the, the place that you wanted to, like, kick off your data science career, if you like? Um, one main factor... My 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 now fiance she was moving to Manchester uh, at the time, or she had moved. Uh, I was still living in Liverpool, and she uh, she moved to Manchester. So I I had every intention where post PhD to uh, once I decided the academic life was not for me to move down to Manchester, and I did didn't interview for many. Uh, when the opportunity to interview for for Weebuy came up, it was actually for a role in the marketing team. Uh, so I interviewed for a role in the marketing team and then ended up getting a an alternative role, which was uh, pricing and trading. And it, would, it, it just felt like a match made in heaven for me because I'm into my cars, really like my cars. Uh, and I had a keen interest in finance and trading specifically. We used to spend most of I say most, uh, some of my PhD in the lab, um, trying to figure out how to, how to um, trade cryptos back in the day before Coinbase and all that type of stuff. Uh, it was it wasn't pleasant, but I did I did interest in how mar- markets work and having the opportunity to take that role and apply more of a data science or take more of a data science approach towards it, it. It was fantastic. I learned a lot in my first year, first eighteen months. I learned a lot about markets and how data science can be applied to them the limitations and just where to you know maximize the, the value from a from a trading aspect 
obviously you went for you were interviewing for a marketing role but had you looked kind of post phd that data scientist was a thing that your degree and, and background would lend itself to or was it all relatively kind of fortuitous nope, com- completely uh, correct it was it was one of those things where once once i decided the academic uh, life was not for me i I looked. I did did research uh, at the time. Data scientist was, you know, it was it was trending. Uh, and you know, you when you do a PhD in in a, in a mathematical realm, you start to see tangential skills which can kind of be applied into different domains. And I seen this, and I seen the opportunity to you know to to embark upon that career. Took it. it was a fantastic decision. Most of the ML side of things I learned on on the fly. My first. My first uh, six or so months at Weebach, maybe a little bit more, I was getting a bus from central Manchester to Middleton on the outside of the, of the city centre on my phone, researching how to build ML algorithms, the ins and outs of them. And it was just, it was, you know, it was a really good time, very interesting. I learned a lot. And I think that's what a PhD teaches you. And that's the, once I walk away from, from the PhD, the only thing I can really hold and say, this was this was massively beneficial to me is the ability of being in the trenches, you know, uh, and really trying to figure out how to solve things. And I think that's that's a key skill that I would recommend to anyone to, to really jump in and not fear the, the failure because you will fail. It's just a learning curve. It is what it is. Um, but that aspect of, you know, of, of really learning and, and, and having the ability to to want to learn is it's just valuable it's massively valuable yeah and i think there's probably a reason that even though it's assuming most companies have got past that like you must have a phd to be a data scientist there's definitely a, a relatively good reason that a lot of phd people end up in data science like but like you said with mathematical backgrounds or like science backgrounds because yeah the problem solving the numerical aspect to it like it just it, it does just lend itself really well. So I guess not, it's not a huge surprise that you learned some of that on the job, but you were like you were very much able to. Yeah, yes, definitely. And on the the PhD for data science link, I I, I recently was recruiting for a role and I had a candidate who was interested, and it was more for a senior role. And I had I had knowledge of her and how she works, and I I glowing recommendations from people who are close to me on how she works. And she she said to me, she said, "I haven't got a PhD. How can I lead other data scientists? I haven't got a PhD." And it it kind of blew my mind. I was thinking, is that still you know still present? The feeling that you have to have a PhD to become a data scientist is that still present? Because I completely disagree. Yeah, no, I think it is is dying out, but well. It's maybe slowly down. Back in like 2015, 16, it was like an absolute prerequisite. Like you couldn't get in the door of an interview. And then it kind of fizzled out a little bit. And every so often it does rear its head, maybe at bigger companies where, I suppose it might be hard. I can see it from, I don't, I disagree, but I think if you had a team of 10, 15 data scientists and every single one had to have a PhD to get the role there, like I could see changing the mindset and the culture might be tricky, but like, it's just something you've got to do because, like, yeah, it's like you, it, it, I totally disagree that it's a it's a prerequisite nowadays. Yeah, I I agree. I, it was it was surprising to me. I think I, I don't know. I think maybe with the data scientists, with the demand coming higher and the you know, well, the demands obviously tailing down a little bit now. But I mean, the shortage of them, 
maybe the acceptance of non-PhDs into roles is becoming more is more paramount. But behind that, I, I I know lots of really 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 talented people without PhDs who really add lots of value within a, within a space, and they understand the complex domain and can apply a problem solving logic towards it. And I I don't believe that you need a PhD for that. Yeah, no, agreed. And I think if you look at the, there's various courses now, like a master's in machine learning or pure data science courses, if you couple that with some, potentially with some business knowledge or industry specific knowledge, like you can piece together lots of different types of data scientists. And that's surely the whole point. Because if everyone's got a PhD in physics or whatever, you run the risk of like a, a fairly, a bit of an echo chamber really like everyone's just got the same way of doing things and nobody really wants to to try something different well we'll get on to recruitment uh, shortly actually because i'm interested to hear your thoughts on it um but in terms of you joining we car there it's been a fairly i don't know like a, bit of a, a meteoric rise if you like so kind of data like you said data scientists are kind of in that pricing team to lead data scientists again within kind of the, the pricing arena um and then over the last couple of years, um, so I think you've been there like five years all in, something like that, um, you're now head of data science and ML. How's that experience been of like a fairly rapid ascent to, from kind of individual contributor to, I'm assuming, kind of some level of senior team lead type thing to like, you now head up the department? Like, what's that been like? At first, tough. It's a learning curve in itself. I've been fortunate. I have had really good mentors within the business to help me adjust to that at the beginning. Still adjusting to it now. I'm I'm learning each day. That plays a massive role. I think you have to be invested in people as well. I'm invested in my team. Invested in making sure that they can succeed in the environment that they work in. They, that is a mindset shift because I think as an individual contributor, and you you are working in a team. You're not working in silo. But the work is about how you can apply yourself. But when you take more of a team leader approach it's now it becomes less of yourself in that contributor role into more into what more of how can i you know how can i create an environment for my team to to meet their full potential within and it it was tough you know people are notoriously hard (laughs) we are general as humans we are we're difficult in our own way but it's challenging but so rewarding like when you see people grow within themselves you know i i i really like to take the managerial approach to or the team leadership approach to how I was mentored is, you know, always look to to innovate and never be afraid of getting things wrong because that is that is just a it's just part of the journey, you know. Um and you will you just will get things wrong. And if you don't then I believe you're not moving outside of your comfort zones. And that's the and that's the advice I, I will always give to anybody when they when, when they ask me how do I get started in the domain, like, you know, how how did you get to the position where, you, where you're in now? And I, my answers are always, everybody has self-doubt and imposter syndrome, but you've just got to find a way to outwork it. You know, disprove yourself. Uh, take those opportunities when they're given to you. Learn on the go. You know, the, the industry moves so fast, it doesn't have, it, it doesn't give you time to take, to stop it for a couple of weeks to learn. You have to learn as you move. And that is the thing that I think is massively important. And, I would always give that advice to to anybody is to just keep learning, keep stacking, and keep st- stacking those skills, and keep taking those opportunities, and just believe and just believe in yourself, and disprove yourself as you go. Yeah, no, that's, that's really awesome advice. And is there anything that surprised you about being like a head of or anything like that? I mean, I think you probably hit the nail on the head already that people are just 
like managing people is just hard, right? Like that's just that's just what it is. But is there anything that you were like, oh, I didn't expect that? Yes, one one main one main point which it didn't necessarily surprise me. It was just maybe it did. It was it was more along the lines of how people underestimate themselves. Back in the the early stages of my career during PhD, I I had the, the biggest self imposter syndrome that there is. I believe that I should not be there. Uh, I believe that. I should not share a room with these intelligent people, things like that. But when you act as a mentor to somebody, because effectively each person in your team, you need to mentor them to be the best that they can. And they, you find that people, they, they just don't believe in themselves. And that motivates me more each day to try to help them get past that. You know, I give them opportunities, um, encourage them to take them uh, more responsibility, allow them to build themselves up to to effectively outwork that self-doubt that they have. If you can do the things that you need to do in order to become that person that you believe that you're not supposed to be, if you can keep doing those things, then eventually you will outwork that imposter syndrome, you'll outwork that self-doubt. And I think people's disbelief in themselves really uh, surprised me. And on top of that, as a head of, have you purposely carved out time to still do in terms of like do data science, or has that been something you've just had to like go of bit by bit? No, I I still yeah I still operate it or contribute in certain areas. The guys, the the team at Weback, they are they are a lot better at general data science and contributing than I am. I I will always hire people who are better than me. Um, I would take a more of a. Uh, a guidance route, but I do still get involved. Uh, a lot of the pricing systems in place now I built, so I help the team hand over that work so they're up to speed on it, um, and you know to ensure that the value still remains and the knowledge still is intact. And when new projects come in from from stakeholders or from the business, you you always have that sense where oh, I love to get my my teeth stuck into this, you know. But as a team leader, it's to ensure that the team are picking up the way to you know to ensure that keeps them motivated data scientists are, are people who you, know, who you can't let plateau because once they start to plateau they start looking elsewhere They're like okay what's next what's next um and if there's not if there's no challenges within the business then they'll go elsewhere and you need to retain your people and um, you need to keep giving them opportunities keep giving them interesting things to work on problems to solve um so even though problems do come onto my plate and at times i you know i i love to tackle them but it's the team who, you know, who take them. Yeah. What is the what's the makeup of your team? Like, how does what does it look like? The team sits in more of the commercial side of the business. The business is kind of split down the middle. You've got software development and then more the commercial side. It's, it sits in the on the commercial side, and we we work with units of the business such as pricing, marketing, uh, sales team, things like that. Each team has their own set of analysts, and, and the analysts will will be the stakeholders in general who we work with in order to help provide solutions, in order to help them, uh, you know, release the value to the business. They understand the business, they they understand the domain that they work in, and we, the the team, work alongside them to build data science orientated or ML products to to solve certain problems within the business. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And I think most people obviously know We Buy Any Car. They can probably sing the song that's on the telly all the time <laughs> or remember some of the adverts. But like when it comes to data science, it is things, because you think about it from a data scientist's point of view, there's huge volumes of data. Then there's 
I'm sure the pricing part must be mega complex, right? Because that must fluctuate all the time. Yeah. So you're taking all these variables into account and trying to make it because I mean it's so it's real time as well, basically, isn't it? Yes. That's a that's a big problem to it's, solve. It's complex, um, but one that's very interesting. I think the the market is so volatile; it changes daily. So being able to adjust to that is a challenge. And I, you know, it poses high risk at the same time. And with with pricing pricing models in general, you know, you you have to be very careful that the level to what you develop at needs to be as less complex as possible because it needs to be explainable. You need to be able to understand the price and logic behind the model, and it's why many you know your conventional ML models will not work because of how black box they are. And that poses a risk to the business, and you know, you've got things such as you know, the compliance side of things as well. You need to be able to explain exactly what it's doing, how is it treating you know customers and and things like that, and you know, you, you need to have that coverage of the model. And it can be, you know, it can it can be pretty dangerous with without that. Yeah, I'm guessing though, we've noticed a big trend over here that companies and I think probably like CFOs, CIOs, are starting to really look at like data spend, like data team and tooling and infrastructure, and they're like people are really starting to hone in on like what value is the data science or data analytics team bringing? Like, is there any sort of ROI? What like, what is it? Because if you add it all up, like. You've got Snowflake as a data warehouse and a few tools and five, six data scientists, four or five data engineers, a data infrastructure team. Like you're closing in on like a million quid a year or, or plus. I'm thinking it somewhere like WeBuy is such an obvious like. There's such an obvious need for data science because it plays such a key part that like that is less of an issue just by nature of what you guys are working on. Is that yes, fair? Totally. Uh, the yeah. amount of data that the business possesses is you know it, it's it's in depth um right down to you know, the marketing straight right through to the pricing it, you know it's and that's been built up over years maybe other than auto trader it probably say has the, the most data as a company within the automotive space and yeah it provides lots of value and lots of opportunity yeah and i think that's what you're looking for as a data team it's like is are you driving are you driving value are the senior people bought into it it's one of the first things you said to me like the senior team at Weebuy Car are really bought into data, so you, you don't have to cross that hurdle as a head of data science, like banging your head off a wall trying to explain like why. Exactly. Yeah, they, they're very invested, and I think the the culture of the of the data team. I think generally the culture of the data team has to be aligned with the overall culture of the business, anyway. But I think over over time and the way that the the culture of the data data science team at, at Weebuy has been has been built. It's been, it has been built alongside. The general business culture, which is you know, innovate, not be afraid of getting things wrong, and I think that the fact that the business is very data, and I don't don't want to use the the uh, the phrase data driven, but it's very data. How do I say, savvy, uh, and it has lots of it, and I think the the senior the, the senior leadership team know that, and they they see the value in it, which is it, it most definitely it makes my life a lot easier. You can say data driven if it is data driven. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, people people say it all the time, but it's just not true. I don't know how you can define it, but then again, that's just me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you're no, you are right, and I got I got overused for a long, long time. What was the experience like? So, as an individual contributor, you said you had good mentors, and then you're in this position where you're hiring, you're growing a team. 
you're trying to attract people. I'm assuming attracting people is okay because of the brand name, the volume of data, the complexity of projects. So you can kind of tick that box. But how was it kind of for you to actually go out and like recruit? Like, what? How did you feel about that? At first, I wouldn't say frightening, but it was you know it was a little bit it was daunting. Um, it took a it took a while to get to get used to a process, a strategy. And like I say, I had, I had good mentors to help me through that. And I've got things wrong in the past. We we, we all have. We've just got to pick ourselves up, brush ourselves off and get back to it, learn from it. I've made wrong hires. But overall, you start to build a, a strategy and a process and you start to identify things in, in people. Um, the ones who question the norm, the the really good people who you'd want to work within your team, 100%. Uh, I, that's the thing I look out for the most. And you are right, by the way, with the brand and you know you you, you come in, you have you have a structured data infrastructure is all set up. Everything's there for a data scientist to come straight in, add value from the get go with a good mentor. None of that manual data wrangling they have to do themselves to set things up. Everything is all is already prepared for them. And it's a case of, of, of them then coming in and understanding the business and understanding the, the domain first, and that takes time. But you do find that when people do come in and they do question how things are done, they question why things are done during the interview process, they show a little bit of understanding of the domain, how the business keeps the lights on, what adds to the bottom line, like things things like that in, in talking about how data science can be applied to to those applications is is where my you know my my eyes light up during an interview process i think that's key because coming into an interview and saying i know this 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 tech stack i know this library i know this 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 and it's fantastic but how can you translate that you know to add some sort of value to the business uh, is key and i had a really good cv presented to me a while back now and it, and that was perfect it was here was the problem I had in the past. Here's a skill that I know that I used to solve it. And here's what here's what happened at the end. So problem is X, I use Y to solve it. Z happened at the end, which which solved the problem of the business. Things like that. I think that is that is what I have started to pick up over the years of building teams is looking for candidates who approach things like that. Yeah, I think one of the things my... Uh... CTO often says to me as a as a data scientist is like lots of data science teams they struggle to get anything like anything done in terms of like really adding value to the business into production all these different things so if you can go into an interview and explain how you did that and one of the biggest things you said to me there was how does the business make money because there's way too many tech teams and it's not just data science but software engineering and all that people they'd be hard pushed to explain like the commercial model of a company like that they're working for because they're they don't care right like they build the technology underneath it but it's kind of important especially in a world like now with all the stuff going on in terms of like the economy and all that you kind of need to be able to know how it makes money and if it's going to continue to make money um and if your role is an important part of that as well um because yeah it can come back to bite you i would have i would have imagined it's going to touch on that so you obviously had a data science and machine learning so i know you've had a big push on the kind of machine learning engineering, machine learning, oh, MLOps. It's probably an interesting question that any data scientist going in interviews can now ask is like, do you have any models in production? How do you go about that? Because there'll be lots of data science teams where they can't answer that. And then like, you, obviously on the other side of the fence, you can go through, this is how we do things. This It's all set up. Like you don't have to 
that part of your job's taken care of or whatever it might be. Uh, but that must help as well. Yes, definitely. I One key thing which which I will always promote within the team is, is, is how can you how can you build how can you build something that's baseline and, and how can you put that into production it doesn't have to be the, the the live or the final production environment but one that emulates production so you can test because you think about how the how how machine learning works right and you and, and how we gauge performance of, of models is more along metrics that are associated towards the model not metrics that are associated towards the business and i think getting it into a production environment is when you can start to measure how well your model performs in a metric of the business uh, and being able to sell that in interviews to two candidates is is a big plus uh, because they know that then if they're coming into a a company or a team or an organization that is showing some sort of tangible value add in terms of a model in production where they're testing and then a team can actually see the thing that they've built being used it's a morale booster massively instead of finding yourself in that circle of doing things for six months and then it not really doing anything which is I call it the, the, the death spiral <laughs> um, because it just gets worse and worse and worse to a point where people start leaving. And that's that's not what you want. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and you said that a couple of times, like having it in the back of your head that like you're not naive enough to know that your team aren't being like approached about roles. So like how do you then, yeah, you've got the infrastructure in place, models are in production, the business has lots of data, there's a problem to solve, they're challenged to get out of the comfort zone. Like there's all these different things. Which means you can kind of you can rest easier a little bit that you've done you've done loads to keep them on side. So like because there'll be lots of data science teams that they get shocked when someone leaves, but they've not actually put anything in production for six months, or there's just not really much going on in the business, like whatever it might be. Like yeah, I think it's a really nice way of going around things, like challenging them, challenging you. I can totally see how that would build like a really confident culture. From your point of view, this is, I don't know if this is all intertwined into some of the things we've already talked about, but you've got a fairly kind of prominent voice, personal brand, if you like, on LinkedIn and social media and, and blogs around data science, data science leadership, all the kind of things we've talked about on this. Was that a very like conscious thing or did, did it happen and it's kind of spiraled? Like what, what drove you to that? I have the whole perspective that I have, that I, that I want to contribute my role as a as a person is to contribute towards the community is to try and help people who are along who are at, at a certain point along their journey that i that i once was at uh, and i feel that i have a duty to release value to to them which is what you know drove me to to experiment with linkedin i will say that linkedin requires massive discipline um, it really does you see some of the you know you see some of the the other voices on there and how how disciplined they are how how structured they are with with the the value that they give to their community i think that's fantastic that has been a real challenge for me and a learning curve for me uh i'm picking up on strategies in order to you know to to make that process more efficient uh, i think building a building a personal brand is probably going to be the most valuable thing that somebody can do within like the next let's say you know two years anyway with, with the way that social media it is and how you know tiktok's effectively becoming you know a, a new search engine and, and i think it's massively valuable that anybody looks to try and build a personal brand and now you know you've got like the rise of substack in blogging if you want more long form type content and things like that i think it's fantastic and i just think everybody has 
the ability to share and i think they shouldn't be afraid to do so because it kind of comes back to that self-doubt thing again is what if i write this and i get five or ten people giving me a stick in my comments saying what you've said is wrong and all that types of stuff you know i've had a few yeah but you learn from them the most and they're the ones you want to interact with you want to understand like why you know when interact with the community see and see what their thoughts are i just like to understand and learn from different people yeah no it's a really good way to do it and i think somewhere like linkedin which is so noisy and full of nonsense a lot of the time there is some really good people like you and affiliates in the data science world where there's a lot of value being added in kind of like relatively short, sharp format as well. Because, yeah, I think there's definitely a place for like Substack and a few other like medium blogs and stuff. But like sometimes it needs to be like a quick like punch of something yeah. and it can get people thinking and talking. And like it's, it's really, I think it's really powerful. Gotta, and But like you said, consistency is hard. Yeah. And I think the LinkedIn is, I like LinkedIn. I do. I think it's slowly becoming similar to other platforms where you have you know, and this is no disrespect to these guys, but like people from different domains who say, you know, with generative AI now, Gen AI is going to kill X, Y, and Z. And you're like, is it? But the problem is, is that's clickbait and people believe it and then people get disheartened by it and then the animosity towards it because they're consuming this type of content, which effectively has been given by somebody who, again, no disrespect, does not understand the domain. And that's not that's not to say that you have to understand they don't mean to talk about it. Most definitely not. But I mean, you have a duty to provide content to your community. You have to make sure that what you're doing is adding value and not scaremongering. So I think I think it's very it's tough to choose what you want to consume. You're right. I think more people can the more people that can post like valuable content hopefully drowns out some of that. Like the one that keeps popping up my LinkedIn feed last week was this image of like a remote worker in 30 years and they're like hunchbacked and going to die early because they work at home. And it was, and it turns out the, I'm sure the reference for the whole place was like some office furniture company or office company who were like, they were posting the narrative. I was like, oh, well, no shit. They don't want people working at home. Like, what, you're going to say that mid journey created um, then? <laughs> maybe, well, maybe, maybe too, to be fair. But yeah, it's just hilarious that like, but then that's that, well, like you said, it's easy to see that. So that's now being posted all around. Some people jump in instantly to tell them everyone's wrong. Some people believe it. So, like, it's like how you want to, yeah, how you, how you choose to consume things. And, like, that's probably the issue with some of the Gen AI stuff, too. Like, you can do a very quick search on, like, ChatGPT or something, and then actually just believing it. Whereas, like, yeah, if you've got people with real domain experience posting things, at least in theory, it should be more credible. So, yeah, no, that's really good. And then we've obviously spoke about hopefully getting you along to one of our Mancam events as well. It's something as like speaking engagements and like there's always panels in Manchester and um, other podcasts and stuff. Is that something that's on your horizon? Like, do you, do you see value in that yes, as well? Yes, that's something I, I plan to experiment in for sure. Uh, I've not done one before, but I am, I'm keen to get involved, definitely. Nice. I think something like one of the reasons people quite like doing the more localized things. So like at MyCML, for example, because obviously you're in the Northwest, it allows you to interact with like other data scientists before they're looking maybe or or right at the right time of them looking. You just never know. So it's a nice, it's a nice way to introduce yourself to the community. So like, yeah, people always ask me like, is it a good idea to speak at these things? Like there's one near me, blah, blah, blah. Like almost always, like it's good to practice. Um, I mean, I hate public speaking so much. Um, but if you give me a topic that I'm confident with, like what you guys would be with data science, I'd be all right at it. Like if I could talk about football or like, I don't know, 
I mean, maybe recruitment from back in the day. But yeah, I'd be happy to do it in a room full of people. So yeah, when data scientists are like a little bit hesitant and then like, you should do it. Like the personal brand thing you said, because they're not going to work at their company forever, very unlikely. And meeting other people in the industry and bouncing ideas off them. And there's a little bit, actually, we had one on, by the time this goes out, it'll be too late, but we had one last week. And a bunch of people said working, they've been working at home so much that being in a room full of data scientists is quite nice. Because like they're working at home loads, so they're back in a room with data scientists and they can just speak about stuff that's going on. Um, and it's another, there's a sociable angle to it now that you're not always going into an office, for yeah, example. And you, and you become a you become a product of your environment. You know, if you sh- sh- surround yourself with people who are, who are in the same field, work as you are you know you you, you're going to get better if you surround yourself with a a good quantity of them anyway and those type of events add massive value because it allows you to take a look at the environment with with you're in and and then think about okay what what are my next directions you know what can i learn next you know what what skills can i stack and it kind of becomes collaborative in a way and then you just end up going on this journey of really acquiring knowledge and then making sure that you apply it and then you just improve yourself tenfold i think those events are really much yeah another th- sure another thing about being in the northwest as well like we're but this has turned into a pitch for the northwest and man came out not meant to but uh being in the northwest i imagine having slight experience of going down to london to some of these events they're like they're massive and it's like i don't know i feel like there's something about the friendliness of like manchester liverpool leads like when we did it in scotland it's like it allows for that collaboration maybe a little bit easier than like being in London where everyone's maybe, I don't know, slightly more sceptical of it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, I, I see. I think, you know, sometimes you know, for certain people going down to London can be quite daunting. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, the North, especially you know, Scotland and then the North of England as well, they want a little bit of a rise in terms of how, you know, the, the tech side of things or Leeds has become a tech hub and it's quite exciting. And there's a startup uh, venture fund just just opened in in Liverpool, trying to bring yeah, I saw that. Uh, it was cool. Baltic Ventures, pretty cool, yeah. Um, so it's like it's bringing the 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 aspects of you know venture capital up north more, investing more in businesses in the north, um, and it's you know it's a it's an exciting time. It sounds like a bit yeah, of Game no, of Thrones, so. doesn't it? The North is on the rise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe not. But no, I think that's it. I think that's it. Thank you so much for joining. It was really good to, to get this in the diary. And uh, like I said, it'd be awesome to get you along to my email as well, because I think a lot of the people there would would like um, how you guys have structured things and, and be able to pick your brains on it. But yeah, no, it's been awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers, fellas. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.